0: Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio
1: Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting right across the world this week from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, the entertainment capital of the world, and this is where entertainment meets technology. You know, I was um, presenting to a Fortune 500 company the other day, and uh, the marketing manager said to me, "Why should I spend a heap of money to educate and develop and train customer service staff? Because as soon as I train them, as soon as they become really good, They're going to leave and go somewhere else. So why the hell should I invest in them? You know, in all my years as a business coach and a trainer and a speaker, I've heard this over and over again. It's got a rate up there as one of the most idiotic statements I've ever heard. The major driver of business growth, return on investment and word of mouth, which in turn increases customer loyalty, reduces marketing costs, and enables higher profit margins. And that key is exceptional customer service. It's also critical to remember that everyone who has any contact with the customer at all in any way is actually on your front line. So you don't only need to train the people who are In customer service, you need to train all those people that have contact with the customer in any way, shape, or form. And we've had companies where we'd say to them, how many people have got, you know, customer service roles? And you'd find that there's two or three. And when you then look at people who talk to them on the phone, people who organize graphics or people who do delivery or people who do all sorts of things, you can have 10 or 12. And um, most people ignore them altogether. To run a successful business, you need to have a happy, dedicated staff who feel valued, will work hard, and they'll be more productive if they do. In the service industry, everyone's dependent on the performance of their employees. A customer can tell in three or four seconds if an employee is dedicated, loves his role, and genuinely cares about the customer. And if... If the customer doesn't feel that, (coughs) you lose the business. And frontline employees have 99% of the customer contact. And yet consistently in my business, I see that they're the least trained, they're the least valued, the least appreciated, and they get the lousiest salaries. They're the face of your organization and not providing extensive training And ensuring that they have customer-centric attitudes and making sure that they're empowered to address customer issues immediately could spell the kiss of death for your organization, particularly in a time with huge disruption and enormous competition. Then now's the time when your customer service, whether you're an online business or whether you're a bricks and mortar business, now's the time when your customer service has to be absolutely red hot. Now, many companies have underperforming employees and they're reluctant to train them or to fire them. But there appears to be several reasons that organizations are reluctant to invest in their employees. And it's these misconceptions, and that's what they are, that keep companies large and small from developing to their full potential. Among some of these reasons are well, my staff already ask if the customer wants fries with that, so they're good enough. Or I can't trust them to make good decisions for the company. Or by the time I spend money to get them trained, they'll leave. Or another one, and this is a rip of this one, our customers love our great products. They love the way we present. They don't come for fancy service. Oh, really? (laughs) Um, My frontline employees get paid a pittance. Why would I waste money training them and have to pay them more? Well, anybody using any of those reasons is going to go broke. Well, go out of business. You can absolutely guarantee it. And you can't just give these employees an eight-hour training session once. It's got to be consistent. You know, it's been proven over again that when McDonald's or Coca-Cola stop advertising for a month, their sales decrease markedly. Now, you wouldn't think McDonald's, for example, is a household name. But if they stop advertising for a month, their sales go down dramatically. So just imagine what it's like if you don't train your employees, they get into bad habits and those bad habits get worse and they escalate. Training staff is exactly the same. Training is one of the highest leverage activities available. If your training efforts result in a 1% improvement, just a 1%, and I guarantee you it'll be a 25% or 50% improvement in your employees' performance. Just think of what that will do to company loyalty, brand issues, productivity, and therefore your bottom line over 12-month, 2,000-hour working year. Just a 1% increase. Just think of how huge that is. And you should be able to get 10, 20, 30, 40. Look, for example, if you get me to come in and train your staff, I'll guarantee you that they'll do 50% better. So, You know, you need to concentrate on training your staff. Now, if the customer receives an incredible customer experience, they'll come back. They'll tell their friends. You know, it's so much easier to grow your business with word of mouth advertising through well-trained employees. If you want customer-driven and high-performing employees, you need to invest in your total workforce with something new and fresh every four to six months. So if you want to have a successful company and you want to survive this pretty tough time in business, you really need to put great effort into training your frontline employee. It doesn't help. doesn't hurt to train all of them, but certainly your frontline employees. Now this caught my attention during a week. A company in Sweden is testing a traffic light system to cut down on all those office interruptions. So by measuring the mouse and the keyboard activity, the flow light can turn red or green, but it turns red when you're only 9% above your average activity. So this isn't the time to start up a chat about who's going to win the football next Saturday. So you get red lights when you're endangering, and you get green lights if you're way ahead of the game. And you know what? It seems to be working in a 449-person trial subjects dealt with 46% fewer interruptions. Hey, my red light's blinking. Piss off. I'll talk to you later. So I I think it's great. I think it's a great idea. It keeps, particularly with all the distractions there are now with social media. But, you know, while it focused on on helping workers be more productive, there's something sort of scary about having Employee monitoring bots watching everything you do. Um, Companies like WorkSmart already monitor keystrokes to make sure everybody is on task. Even employee favorites like Slack, which enables you to make a channel for a project, a topic, a a, a team, or in fact, anything where everyone has a transparent view of all that's going on have acknowledged they have an eye on measuring and monitoring productivity in the form of manager bots. Now, so you can already check on stats on which employees are slacking the most. Damn, I guess there's nowhere that you can hide to slack off. I guess you're going to get caught. Pity that. Hey, stop what you're doing and listen up. This is a very important message for every business. If you want to stop leaving money on the table, you need to set your prices right. So go to atenga.com, that's A-T-E-N-G-A.com, and download their free ebook called Seven Easy Steps to Successfully Increasing Prices. It's a quick read and may well be the most profitable thing you've done all day. My friend Per Sofas, who owns the company, can get you your total investment in a tenger back in as little as four to six weeks. That's how cheap it is. So you've got to ensure that you have your prices exactly right. Maximize your profits, maximize your success. So go to com now. Now, I don't know about you, but I get really annoyed when I see a party of four or a family at a restaurant, and every one of them spends the entire time that they're at the restaurant on their smartphone. They've obviously got nothing to talk about, so why go out and spend fifty to a hundred bucks on a meal to totally ignore each other? You know, if your friends are that bloody dull and devoid of personality, they should just stay home. Just lock them in a room somewhere. So. When they're sitting there, duh, 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 you can just imagine that really intelligent, meaningful shit that they're texting to people, can't you? Now, the pepper hacker grinder, it looks like a pepper, pepper grinder. It looks exactly like a pepper grinder. And you can actually use it to put pepper on your meal, but it's pretty ingenious. It actually shuts down the phones without anyone suspecting anything. They just think they've got a lack of signal. These things should be compulsory at all restaurants, in trains, trams, buses, (laughs) and a whole bunch of other places. We just need to have a reason to put pepper grinders on a bus, for example. Perhaps we could put up mobile taco carts on every bus and tram and train. See, we could stop people to be on their mobile phones, and we could give people jobs serving food at the same time. Now, the Mars brand gave away 3,500 pepper hacker grinders to shut down Wi-Fi devices, and the initial response was so overwhelming that the company decided to move the item from prototype stage to a genuine consumer product. Now, the original shaker required a complex network of wiring for the pepper grinder to shut down TVs and phones and tablets. However, the consumer release will override a home Wi-Fi network and shut down up to four connected devices for 30 minutes. I think that's fantastic. It's a lighthearted gadget for parents to have on their side to help encourage the family to actually talk together. I know that's a pretty novel idea, but some people actually do talk. And parents, you might actually find there's a real person inside those blank, seemingly brain-dead bodies that you call children. (laughs) The downside, of course, is that for 30 minutes, your kids won't know how many times their friends went to the bathroom or how much milk their friends have in their Cocoa Pops. Wow. Their world could really have ended in the 30 minutes that they were deprived. Then again, maybe parents are happy not to have to listen to the nonsensical rambling of teenage kids. (laughs) Hmm. You take your choice. If it was me, I'd be buying the pepper grinder at 100 miles an hour. I think it's a wonderful idea. Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We now have about 1.7 million daily subscribers. And I invite you to go to my website, which is bobprichard.com, and enroll for my daily newsletter. It takes just 30 seconds to read it. Well, I must admit, today's was a bit long. It might take you a minute and a half, but tomorrow's really short, so you might be able to do it in 27 seconds. But um, it's around about 30 seconds to read, and it'll keep you up to date with all the business news that's important. We've got people all over the world, um, customers in Australia and in England and in Canada, that um, actually circulate the newsletter to all their staff, if it's a... Subject in which the staff would be interested because every day we tackle a different subject. We're going from advances in medicine to new apps to new technology to subjects like the Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, cryptocurrency, etc. And they're all subjects that you should know about if you're going to survive in this new global revolution. The newsletter is free. Its information is invaluable, and if the boss decides to take you out to dinner and there's six of you sitting around the table and the subject gets on to Hyperloop, you can dazzle them with all the stuff you know about Hyperloop or autonomous cars. I'm glad we started talking about that because I know a hell of a lot about autonomous cars. What about an advance in medicine? Yeah, I, I know about that. Just, just imagine how quickly you're going to rocket through the ranks at your office, because you'll be the smartest guy on the block, because I'll bet you that a lot of people won't take the time to learn they're too busy texting what they had for breakfast to their friends. Now, today's guest is Greg Wendt. He's a fellow member of Metal who first discovered the notion of sustainable development in the late 80s. Since then... Greg's been passionate about applying his considerable gifts, considerable gifts. This boy is really smart in the fields of economics, business, and sustainable and responsible investing. Greg gained a wealth of experience and expertise and experience at Smith Barney, Dabney Resnick, which is now, as you probably know, Imperial Capital, UBS, Prudential Securities, and EP Wealth Advisors. And I'm going to speak with Greg after this short break on the Voice America Business Network.
0: You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. For over the last five and a half years or so, we've given you insights into the lives of over 350 of the world's most interesting business people. We've talked about what they do how they've overcome the challenges that they've faced. And we try to find out what it is that makes them tick. You know, it's extremely difficult to create a successful business. We're running at somewhere around 95% of new businesses fail. So we we need to receive advice and assistance from all those entrepreneurs who have gone before us and ha- who have overcome those challenges and who have achieved success. We don't want to go out and repeat the same mistakes or make the same misjudgments that they might have made. So the aim of this interview segment is to assist you to overcome the challenges and become more successful. My guest today, Greg Wendt, is a Southern California native and a fellow member of Metal. And uh, he first discovered the notion of sustainable development in the late 80s. God, it seems like a long time ago, didn't it? The 80s. Mm-hmm. So since then, Greg has been passionate about applying his considerable gifts in fields of economics, business, and sustainable and responsible investing. He gained a wealth of experience and expertise at Smith Barney, Dabney Resnick, which is now Imperial Capital, UBS, Prudential Securities, and EP Wealth Advisors. So he's one of those really smart money guys. And... Uh, you know, that, having been in, an entrepreneur all my life, I've come to the conclusion that the only guys who make any money, <laughs> <laughs> as entrepreneurs, are the are the money guys. Now, <laughs> Greg's now senior wealth advisor, heading the West Coast efforts of Stakeholders Capital, which is a boutique registered investment advisory firm specialising in impact investing and wealth management. I'm going to find out what a bit of that means. Now, since 1991, Greg has worked as a financial advisor, an economist, and a certified financial planner, assisting families to align their wealth through investments that reflect their priorities and concerns for a better world. I think I understand what that means. Now, Greg's on the steering committee um, of the California Economic Summit and co-chair of the Capital Action Team, and a member of the California Financial Opportunities Roundtable, which is a select group of experts convened by the uh, San Francisco Fed and the Obama administration to increase impact investing in California. Greg's passionate about working to improve how we do business and really concerned about the environment leaving the world in a much better place than when we came into it, which wouldn't be hard but uh, for some reason, it seems to be getting more difficult. Greg, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, which is being heard
2: live around the world. Thank you, Bob. A pleasure to be here with you.
1: Um, what is sustainable and responsible and impact investing? What What is that?
2: Well, what is business as usual? Uh, what is investing as usual? And then what are we doing? Looking to do with the way that you, we we're talking about uh, business as usual is is going forward with business activities without considering the influence that such business activities have on the greater society or the environment. Yep. And investing is investing, keeping in mind the influence business has on the greater society and the environment and doing everything we can to invest in businesses that improve the relationship between our business activities and the economy and the greater society and the environment. Very simply that. And then how it's applied is different for every single investor and every investment group.
1: If you had a look at the um, uh, New York Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. I can't remember how many companies are listed there. I did I did actually look it up yesterday, but I can't remember. But there's a hell of a lot. And yeah. how, how many of those companies would actually be concerned um, in the main with um, sustainable and responsible investing? You know, a, lot you of know, them, a lot of them seem to put up this facade of, you know, we're really good guys, mm-hmm. and that's the image that they get while at the other end they're reaping hell out of everything they can
2: It's good PR um, Yeah You know I think there is authentic concern over the last 20 years I've seen a growing interest among business leaders you know to incorporate what we call corporate social responsibility Yep um, You know we've found over the years that businesses who pay attention to details beyond quote business as usual who look at markets who look at the environment. Look at the communities they operate in; they're more efficient businesses, generally speaking. They're more attuned to what's going on, and they're more successful over time. Yeah. Um, and to look at the bigger picture, there's roughly oh, about between forty-five and fifty trillion dollars under management and in investments uh, in you know America right now, and the U.S. Forum for Social and Envi- and uh, re- socially responsible investing, U.S. SIF. Uh, just did a study, our, our, our biannual study, and there's a, just under nine trillion dollars. About one fifth of the dollars under management are incorporating environmental, social, and governance factors in the investment decision making. Right. So it's it's not a fringe movement. It's you know it's truly mainstream now. Uh, for many. Uh, surprisingly, it is a new idea, and for many like myself, it's something that's been here for 30 or 40 years. It's just what we pay attention to, and that—that that is the irony of our culture. As you uh, to your earlier comments about what's going on in the world, it's—it's it, it's how do we make meaning, and what what are we paying attention to? One of the things that is attributed to Einstein's office is a quote that they that has been said but we have how do we verify what was in his office when but I like the quote nonetheless is what is often counted does not count and what is what counts is often not counted and these are really important things to think about you know when we look at economic activity and uh, in economics economics 101 we look at a business and then Everything that is considered outside of the business activities are considered externalities, uh, quality of life and communities, environmental issues, how well the employees are doing at home. These are all kinds of, there's many, many factors that are called externalities, but in reality, are they really external to the business? Does a business really reside separate from the larger society? And does the larger society live outside of nature, the environment, and when you really observe things as they are, we we recognize that nature, the larger biosphere, contains the larger society, which contains the economy, and they're a continuous, it's a continuous system. So people like ourselves who work in this field of investment management for a better world, we are working with what is actually happening in reality rather than what we call theory-induced blindness that somehow a business is separate from the society it runs in or economy is separate from the larger culture and the environment. Those are not true. So we want to look at the real data of being what is really going on and look at the influences every dollar that, you know, that our money makes.
1: If, if you look at um, uh, the cabinet of our new incoming president mm-hmm. and, and you look at um, – Um, ties to oil and gas. Let's just pick one Mm -hmm. portfolio there. Um, Mm -hmm. That is a massive portfolio, and Mm -hmm. the influence of those companies in that oil and gas area has been, in my view, extremely damaging to the planet. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that right at at the moment, we seem to be putting the um, wolf in charge of the chicken coop.
2: Mhm, and, and that was the, that was the case with the uh, the previous administration as well, uh, with Bush administration, you know. Where, and I, and I've you know been feeling for some time that to put it really bluntly, we we are more or less in a global corporatocracy, and what I mean by that is most national governments are influenced predominantly by moneyed interests and economic activity. And it's not some conspiracy, it's just a recognition that major transnational corporations do play a meaningful role in society and governance, and that we need to recognize that. And to some extent, what's happened in the last few months, the veil has dropped to some extent, where we see what is, and, uh, you know, it's a shock for many, and for many of us who have been tracking on these things for years, recognize, well... um, you know the the veil has dropped, and we actually have an authentic, uh, maybe more, maybe more humorously a, a corporate takeover of 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 you know the halls of power in D.C. Now, having felt that for many years, well, what do we do? You know, it's not like this is a brand new development. Um, you know, you can go back to the British East India Company. Who I believe it was around five hundred years, you know was it was or no it wasn't five hundred years, but it was a very long time that they right. they were influencing India. That was a corporation running government activity in India, so it's not like this is a brand new development that we're shocked by that business has an influence on society and governance. Well, then what do we do with this actual development where uh, you can see most wars in the last 100 years have been motivated by resources or economic activity to a great extent. Um, this is not shocking if you actually look at the data. So then what do we do again? what The question is, one, I don't know exactly what to do, but the world that we are in is looking at money drives corporate behavior. They're influenced by going to get more sales or getting more investors. Well, then, if we can influence the way that money motivates corporate behavior and economic activity for government and other other groups beyond business, if we can change the mindset through which money is driven and decision-making is made, we can actually effectively change the fuel or change the way that the fuel is used for corporate behavior and incentivize or create new 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 meaningful influential activity that will actually make corporations, you know, move in the direction that society will benefit from in the long run as you probably know we have a short-term economy namely the you know quarter to quarter report that every publicly traded company and i I like the example of uh, patagonia and this is a this is a more of a a broad kind of commentary, and I, I don't know exactly what happened, but Yvonne Chouinard, who started uh, Patagonia, the general idea is he committed to having only organic cotton, which was at the time very expensive. Yep. And his team said, this is too expensive. He said, I own the company, so we're doing this. Where if he was a publicly traded company, he would not be able to save that. Yep. So the way that we made, the, the very structure of the way that Governance and corporations is going incentivizes management to to prioritize money and short-term interests over long-term thinking and long-term investing. Uh, So those are some of the non-environmental, non-societal dynamics that are also structural issues we need to look at and then look at how do we inspire corporations to incorporate the values that we're talking about. If you look at um, Mm
1: millennials… they seem to be much more in tune with the environment and and looking after the planet than perhaps at our age we are. But I remember back when I was the equivalent of a millennial, I was concerned about the planet and I was concerned about, you know, all those things. Um, But as you get older, you seem to slip away from it. Um, I I don't know whether it's an acceptance of the status quo that, what the hell? You can't win, or whether it's um, we become more well, selfish. I, I,
2: I think it's as we get older, it's a story we tell ourselves, and what our priorities are. You know, as you get older, you have a family. You need to pay the bills. You need to put food on the table. You know, then we need to find a job, and all those kinds of dra- drivers. Whereas when you're younger and and single, I think those are understandable uh, dynamics. Uh, the question is when we connect the dots between what our jobs are doing to the larger society and a larger in the environment, um, then the, 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 some of those those values, you know, start start surfacing, surfacing. And I think we're we're seeing a movement here where it's evident that we can no longer continue business as usual. And we must innovate in a new way. And to your earlier question around fossil fuels and the like, you know, the the, the fossil fuel industry is in transition. And it's just a matter of time, you know, whether it be decades or centuries before we can no longer rely on pulling carbon and energy out of the earth and burning it to, there's so many more interesting and effective ways to generate electricity, yeah. i.e. solar. As you know, it, the, the, just the statistics are coming out this week, you're probably aware of that. Um, Solar panels are now such that you'll pay back the investment costs within a year, and we're at grid parity in over, I think, over 150 to 200 countries. Namely, what that means is um, solar panels are as cheap as any other source of fuel in over 150 countries. So this is a transition that will happen regardless of what happens in D.C. and who's in charge. This is an economic driver, and we are in an economy and in a, in a situation where, economy does override um, opinion. Uh, so the question is, how do we influence economic activity to adopt the opinion of a better world for future generations rather than the short-term buck? Yeah, And these are the kinds of areas that that are, are, are very nuanced and there's many, many layers of activity that we can discuss it, uh, over time.
1: It seems to be, to some degree, it seems to be a, um, a pee and shell game in that you hear... Tesla and I love Tesla but you you hear Tesla talking about a zero emission car and then you look at everything that goes into producing your Tesla and you find that you know yeah. <laughs> there's not a whole bunch of zero emission going on here mm-hmm. um, so and for, for every company like a Patagonia and like a um, a Starbucks and, and companies that appear to be good responsible corporate citizens um there seems to be another thousand that don't give a rat's ass
2: that is a challenge that we face you know and that's something that always concerns me is that no matter how good a few are there's always those who don't care and that becomes the overriding challenge yet you know uh i love the the idea of um what Buckminster Fuller said, nothing in a caterpillar looks like a butterfly. And, you know, we have to, and also if you look at the way that a butterfly is developed out of the chrysalis, there are what are called imaginal cells. Uh, imaginal cells are cells that are, that, that are transformed inside the goo of the, the, the caterpillar as it transmutes into becoming a butterfly. And the first cells, as you may know, uh, spark, and they're initially attacked by the, nerv- the the immune system of the caterpillar, and then they are embraced. So I think that this is a kind of catalytic change that we we can't not necessarily know how change will go, but we have to continue to do the right thing. And and the fact that one in five dollars is influencing, uh, in, you know, investment decisions toward a better world that means we're on the right track. We just have to keep going. And you know, the questions that I continue to hold is how do we do this faster? Is this fast enough? Is this is this enough? And that's what that's the kind of question that continued to drive me to innovate my business and the way that we approach things. So,
1: <laughs> excuse me. <coughs> How did you find yourself focusing your wealth management practice in this area? Had what you just?
2: Well, feel- and just, you, you mentioned it briefly at the beginning of our our, our call um, in the early. In the late '80s, uh, I think it was '87, '88, uh, the United Nations convened what is called what was called the Brundtland Commission, um, which was the Commission on Environment and Development, looking at the way that we help uh, less industrialized countries become modern economies. How do we help them do that? And we have to do this kind of development in a sustainable way. Was the idea that meets the needs of the current generations without compromising the needs of future generations. And I learned about that idea when uh, I was an economics student at UCLA, and it just made a lot of sense, just common sense. Um, And from that standpoint, uh, the idea of sustainable development as a driver inspired the United Nations to create a group uh, at the called the, the Earth Summit. The first Earth Summit was in 1992. Yeah. You maybe remember that. Yeah. And we've had a series of those over the years. And I spoke at a conference uh, in 1989, uh, which was a preparation conference for United North America to come up with all the ideas that North America will contribute to the Earth Summit. And I contributed to the creation of that document. So I really got it at that time. I'm like, this is a possibility where economic activity and my passion for environmental uh you know activism and and also responsible environmental behavior those two can be born together and then i learned about this this notion and then uh, a friend of mine actually asked me to work with him at smith barney and at that time i learned about socially responsible investing and that was in 1991 um and it was a very you know it was a new idea then um and very few people even knew what the ideas were, but I began to learn and discuss as I built my business around municipal bonds and wealth management. And then in 2002, uh, it became clear that I, I really was wanting to dedicate my time solely to helping individuals who want their money aligned with their values. So I went into private practice at that time. and. Uh, dedicated my entire business only toward uh, working with individuals and families and institutions who want uh, their money managed this way. So, if you're, um,
1: I try, I'm trying to think of a question that compares um, general business with mm-hmm. responsible investing. Is there is uh, can you get the same similar sort of returns from responsible investing as you can through? Um,
2: Fossil yes. Fuels, for Fossil, I think if you were to look at one sector, um, to look at the overall market. Right. If you look at the overall stock market as compared to responsible investing, and you know there, this is a, a question for any investment manager whether they're focused on responsible investing or not. How does your strategy do compared to the market? Are you performing well? And this is the you know the very root of every wealth management firm and mutual fund uh, you know, ideas of how do we beat the market? So that, this question arises all the time, and there's a lot of assumptions that people have is like, well, if you take certain stocks out, you're going to miss out on the overall market. Well, uh, and also, well, what, what is the time frame that we're looking at? Are we looking at six months? Are we looking at a year? Are we looking at three years? It's all arbitrary, yet, you know, for most of, you know, if not all of my clients, we're investing money for decades. And we're, you know, putting money away when people are young for their retirement or people who are in retirement that expect to live 30, 50 years or foundations and endowments who want their money to be managed in perpetuity. So all those factors look at a long-term approach. And this is kind of like the way that Warren Buffett has has succeeded is looking at the long-term. And I look at a 7 to 10-year return on investment for the managers that I evaluate to a great extent. You know, three, two, three, four years are sometimes um, uh, static, you know, but we look at returns for all those time frames, and generally speaking, the managers that I work with have a track record of doing as well or better than the overall market uh, in the time frames that we're talking about, and it has to, as a fiduciary, which it means that I manage my clients Money as if it's my own, sure. and I, I'm held to that standard um, as a registered investment advisory firm. Um, the management that we we you know work with, and the, that we we work with other managers who do a lot of the stock picking, and we want we have a, a, a degree of scrutiny that we we hold. And most of those managers have done well uh, compared to the overall market when they have incorporated these values. So. The good news, in in essence, in some, there's not a trade-off. And in every investment management group, uh, there are successful managers and unsuccessful managers. And in socially responsible investing or responsible investing, we have to, you know, filter out the good and bad managers as well.
1: How much influence over the last few years has regulation had? On making, forcing companies to be more um, ecologically and environmentally responsible?
2: I don't really know the answer to that question. I don't have the data on that. But generally speaking, um, regulation for what? I mean, that's something that's been so um, thrown around in the political discourse and the media, regulation, yet. It's you know in the same way you can't say government. Uh, there are hundreds of different government entities, and there's local, state, regional, national, and international governing bodies, and there's similar amount of regulatory frameworks. Um, you know that's a good question. You know that that I think that. Regulation, to some extent, when corporate, you know, when when bi- business people want to make a decision, they will just make a decision that prioritizes the bottom line. And people that are committed to what we call the triple bottom line—people, planet, and profit—make decisions where we incorporate those factors, and we feel those are better businesses uh, in the marketplace, regardless. So, it, it you know, then I think regulation does play a role there, and the question. I, I, I guess the short answer is I don't know, but and we do, do know that it plays a role.
1: But many of us were becoming, you know, encouraged by what appeared to be a, a heightened degree of consciousness of the planet and people's rights among the business community. But to me, we seem to have taken a giant step back and we're going to a me, me, me attitude. And, and uh, all you hear from, the, from government is uh, we're going to roll back all the regulations. We're going to, you know, we're going to um, take the take the teeth out of the um, Environmental Protection Agency. We're going to, you know, so are we just encouraging corporations to go back to the good old days?
2: Yeah, I wouldn't call it that. <laughs> uh, good old days when, uh, you know, it, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, so let's, bad, old,
1: bad, old days. I guess I meant, or just
2: uh, when you know. All we need to do is look back at uh, um, you know the, the the birth the birth pangs of the industrial revolution and the kinds of the kinds of uh, issues that brought about um, the need for you know putting some kind of boundaries around the way we do business for the yep. sake of. The well-being of society and people, and you know, when you look back at you know the the you know the fact that there were rivers on fire because of the toxins and and pollution in them, and what's happening in Flint, Michigan, or you know Fukushima, um, it's pretty obvious, you know, to anybody who's you know a, you know not does not have their head in the sand that. We have to watch out because no one wants uh, a fire in their river, or a forest cut down in their backyard, or a nuclear waste dump, or a nuclear explosion in their in their neighborhood. So it's pretty clear. But I guess one one of the things that always is a question for me is how is it that such people that that do not do not support this kind of responsible behavior. Um, how is it that they're thinking that it will not happen in my backyard? You know that we're not exempt from, you know, the the air and the water. Um, we might have our gated communities and our privileged homes. You know, which I feel like I'm living in such an, an an environment. The question is, you know, are we really separate from the rest of the system? Can we actually separate ourselves? And and no, we cannot. And and that's something that means we have to look at how do we address reality and navigate according to what is. And you know, it's clear that the system that we're in is not working. And, and for many decades it's become clear to me and you know, the people that I work with um, and the think tanks and the governing bodies, the policy groups and the investors that I work with, you know, we, we're, we're really clear that the system was not designed to solve today's problems, we must re- reinvent the system. Yet, to just tear down the system and uh, leave nothing in 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 its place is not necessarily a way to govern. I've had a number of conversations with people. Well, if we take government out of the equation, who's going to address the problems that business is not designed to solve? Right. And this is the issues of the commons. How do we address the commons? And I think that's where it comes down to this notion of what is meaningful, what actually counts. And some deep questions have to be asked about our hypothesis, about our, 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 our way of seeing the world and humanity and ourselves. And it's you know, it comes down to are we all is everything connected in an entire system or can we separate things? And I think that idea of separation is actually just a false premise. And I'm actually optimistic for the long-term uh, prospects of humanity because people will eventually wake up that it's all connected and we have to to manage ourselves and govern ourselves responsibly, which includes reinventing the system that was not designed for the problems that we have today. Um, it's just a matter of how do we go about it. Yeah. Don't,
1: Aren't we? We seem to be encouraging, like Flint, Michigan, for example. Mm-hmm. We, have, we have a water problem. Mm-hmm. It's taken forever to do anything about it. They're still not doing anything about it. Nobody's mm-hmm. really paid the price for that. And mm-hmm. I'm sure it's happening in hundreds of other communities, and they're all saying, well, you know, with a bit of luck, we won't get caught. And it's, isn't that similar thing that happened with Enron and a whole bunch of others that you know i can drink and drive because i'm all right somebody else is going to get killed isn't that
2: yeah i think there's some there's an overriding overarching you know a, you know presumption that my activity and my benefit from my activity is separate from the welfare of the overarching society of the commons of the of the the very society that i'm in yeah and you know, the question is, how long will that last? And many people think, well, if as, long, as long as I can get away with it uh, and I can get my stuff and run away and ha- hide in my little, you know, palace, then I'll be okay and, you know, screw the rest of the world. Well, that's been the me, you know, discussion. Yet, uh, it, this stuff does come home to roost, and the, you know, we, to a great extent, you know, Flint Mission, again, is a perfect example, and how do we actually address that? Well, it's about rolling up our sleeves and recognizing that we're all in this together and we have to make decisions for here and get things done for us, yeah. and, and this is the spirit that the California Economic Summit has with a bipartisan group of people. Uh, coming together to say, we are managing this state with a recognition that we're all here together and we're in this together. So we have to figure it out together in a bipartisan way. And this is something that I feel is a model for the way we can govern the world. And um, and i'm I'm committed to to showing the example here. Which is why I love the work that I do, which incorporates business interests and civic society interests at the same time as investors who have a financial stake in the benefits of, of both business and society. So I think this is, um, these are the kind of directions I think, you know, were we to have a lot more time, I would be saying there is a way. It wow. just has to be, we just have to have the intention to recognize and not keep our head in the ground.
1: California's California is an interesting example because um, um, while we talk about bipartisan groups in California, um, we're really talking about, uh, in one way or another, a whole bunch of Democrats, aren't we? I mean, compared with, say, Kansas or Ohio or Mississippi or wherever where um, the, the two sides are poles apart. So who are you most inspired by? Who is it that
2: makes you feel? Good? Oh, good question. Um, I'm inspired by business leaders who who see the possibility that we are in this. You know, the reality that we're in this together, and the possibility that we can figure this all out. I mean, you know, people like Richard Branson. He comes to mind as someone who is a is a is a pragmatic. Visionary right who has demonstrated success by combining his values with you a know, successful business and the notion of a trade-off is is a false reality it's absolutely an illusion and and that's the beautiful opportunity to to be inspired by people like that and and also, I'm inspired by what California has done. You know, the whole idea of um, the way that our state works is one of the most successful economies on the planet. And uh, so many things that people who, who, who believe there are, there are trade-offs, this is a living laboratory to prove otherwise. And um, that we can succeed in a low-carbon and uh, an energy-efficient economy, and thrived, um, you know, for people, you know, with the way that we run the state. So I think this is like why, again, I'm continuing to be very encouraged by the way California can lead the way, and show how uh, how things can be done to integrate these these priorities together in a cohesive civilization.
1: Greg, thanks very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now you can mo- learn more about Greg Went at Greg Went, G R E G, W E N D T, dot com. You can look it up on my on my website at, after today, and uh, you'll be able to find the contacts. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Network after this short break.
0: Welcome back
1: to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Absolutely No Bullshit Business Radio Show and Voice America Business Channel, and we're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs, this week broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, where technology meets entertainment. Now, we know what conspicuous consumption is. It denotes the way that material objects represent social position and status, like having a Rolex watch or driving a convertible Bentley. and um, But most luxury goods have become more accessible due to mass production, the outsourcing of, of production to China, the cultivation of emerging markets where labor and materials are cheap. And the middle class consumer demands more material goods at cheaper price points. So this democratization of consumer goods has made these goods less useful as a means of displaying status. Both the rich and the middle class own huge TVs, nice handbags, they lease SUVs, they take aeroplanes, they go on cruises. So given these goods are accessible to everyone, the rich now use much more tacit signifiers of their social position. Of course the super rich still have yachts and Bentley's and gated mansions, but elite spending, is driven by a well-to-do, educated, aspirational class. The new elite cements its status through knowledge and building cultural capital, preferring to spend on services, education, and human capital investments rather than material goods. This is called inconspicuous consumption. Now, none of these consumer choices are inherently obvious, or ostensibly material, but they are exclusionary. Now, the US Consumer Expenditure Survey data reveals that since 2007, the country's top 1%, and that's $300,000 or more a year income, are spending significantly less on material goods, while middle-class income groups, which is 70,000 a year, are spending an increasing amount. Now, the rich are investing significantly more in education, retirement, and health, all of which are immaterial, yet cost many times more than any handbag that a middle-income consumer might buy. The top 1% now devote the greater share of their expenditures to inconspicuous consumption, with education increasing 3.5 times in 10 years, accounting for 6% of the top 1% household expenditures. Now you compare that with just 1% of middle income expenditure, and that's remaining really flat. The vast chasm between middle income and top 1% spending is on education, and that's particularly concerning because unlike material goods, education's become more and more expensive. According to Consumer Expenditure Survey data, college tuition increased 80% while the cost of women's apparel increased by just 6%. Now, it can't be said that middle class lack of investment in education doesn't suggest a lack of prioritization. It's actually just cost prohibitive. So while much inconspicuous consumption is extremely expensive, there's Less expensive, but equally pronounced signals. For example, somebody who's reading The Economist or somebody who buys pasture-raised eggs. um, In lockstep with the invoice for private preschool comes the knowledge that one should pack the lunchbox with quinoa crackers and organic fruit. Outside the upper middle class bubbles of the US, coastal cities, mainly on the coast, Lunch boxes in the middle of the country consist of processed snacks and, of course, no fruit. Knowing which New Yorker articles to reference or what small talk to engage in at the local farmers' market enables and displays the acquisition of cultural capital, therefore, therefore providing entry into social networks that in turn help pave the way to elite jobs, key social and professional contacts and private schools. In short, inconspicuous consumption confers social mobility. Now, investment in education, healthcare and retirement has a notable effect on consumers' quality of life and also on the future life chances of the next generation. Inconspicuous consumption is a means to a better quality of life and improved social mobility for one's own children, whereas conspicuous consumption is merely an end to itself. For today's aspirational class, inconspicuous consumption choices secure and preserve social status, even if they don't display it like the Lamborghini in the driveway. I invite you to go to my website, com, and enrol for my daily newsletter. It takes just 30 seconds to read. Tomorrow's a little bit longer, and we'll keep you up to date with all the business news that is important. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're just taking up way too much space. It is a hell of a lot easier, and it's more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Any bastard can do the ordinary and next week we'll again be broadcasting from hollywood boulevard in los angeles this is where technology meets entertainment and i hope you can join me again in the meanwhile continue to be successful and if you're not strive to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks this
0: is bob pritchard (music)